Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'm happy to be with you today to discuss another interesting topic, at least I hope it's interesting, regarding multifamily real estate investing. Today, it's five reasons I'd like to share with you to say no to a deal. Now, this is all about selecting and identifying a good acquisition. And these are some of the lessons we've learned from years and years and years of acquiring multifamily assets and industrial assets and office assets and retail and the like. But we're today very specifically focused on multifamily, so we wanted to share some of what we've learned in, um, in that regard. So a little background. Uh, one of the reasons you might be thinking, well, okay, why is this such an interesting topic? Has to do with what we believe is the right way to think about achieving a return on your investment. Now, everybody would love to see good solid cash returns, right? I'd like to have a great cash yield. I'd like to see my original investment grow. I'd love for it to compound over time. And I'd like to take advantage of the wonderful pieces of the tax code that are available to us real estate investors. Those are the return items I'm interested in. Uh, we agree completely. And that needs to occur on a foundation of security and stability. The stability component comes from the strength of the multifamily marketplace, right? All those great demographics and supply demand components and so on that drive what's going on in multifamily today and into the future. But the security uh, component comes from the acquisition of the asset, purchasing the right kind of asset with the right sort of strategy, and then executing that strategy well, ultimately through uh, the exit, and in our instance, through an exit followed by a, a reinvestment of those uh, earnings uh, via a 1031. So, how do you achieve that security component? Well, we think there's five things to think about in terms of identifying assets that you don't want to purchase. Five reasons to say no to an acquisition. And um, we look at a lot of deals every year in order to get the one that will come through that makes it into our investment portfolio. And in order to do that, we have some criteria that we want to keep in mind. As we have looked at these over time, five of them kind of raise, uh, rose to the, uh, to the top. And so I want to share these with you, not necessarily in any order, although I have to admit this is the order I wrote them down in. So I think there's probably something to all of that. So let's start with the first one, purchase price. Now, you might all say, well, that's an obvious one. If the price is too high, you absolutely want to say no. And that's true. The key is if the price is too high. Too high is a relative term. So what does that mean that it's too high? You know, this isn't like, uh, you know, those commercials you see for buying cars, you know, where you can get a little app on your phone and it'll tell you what other people have paid for that. And so you know that, you, well, I'm buying that car. I'm buying it for a fair price. Well, that's because cars are kind of commodities, right? Um, there might be some differences from one to the other, but for the most part, you're buying the exact same thing that you could buy somewhere else. Obviously, a piece of real estate that we're buying, that's not the case. If I'm looking at a 100-unit apartment building in Waco, Texas, well, 
that's the building I'm looking at. There might be another 100 unit building available in Waco, but it's not going to be in the same submarket. It's not going to have the same demographic opportunities and characteristics. It's not going to have the same employment sectors and so on around it. So uh, they're each unique. And so from that standpoint, you've got to be able to determine, okay, what is the right purchase price? So it's not about cap rates. Um, purchase caps, and we've talked about this before in a previous podcast, um, purchase caps uh, are easily manipulated. One, it's a function of what the trailing 12 financials are all about. And uh, no one entity does their uh financials the same way someone else does. There's always some level of adjustment that needs to take place. And in those adjustments, there could be items that improve or degrade the purchase cap. And so while there are some general thoughts you can have about purchase caps, ultimately the purchase cap in and of itself isn't really gonna make, um, make it make the most sense. So the way you can determine if you've got a good purchase price or not is to start with your underwrite. And so we'll go through, we'll populate the underwrite with all of the appropriate and appropriately conservative inputs that we, um, that we use. And when we're done and we have all of those items in, we'll then plug in generally the price that we believe the seller wants. Now, we might know that because the sellers told us it might be a whisper price. Some of you may have heard that term. It might be simply, you know, a guess, right? It might be something to say, well, let's start with that number. And so we plug that number in and then we'll go through and we'll evaluate all of the metrics that we use, the stress tests like break-even occupancy and uh, debt uh, cover ratio and debt yield and so on. We'll look at the cash returns, the uh, equity growth, we'll look at the IRR and a host of different factors, and we'll begin to adjust that price. What we're going to end up with is a spectrum, right? There'll be an end of the spectrum on price where it's like, yeah, this is a go. This this looks really good. We'd be completely satisfied if we could get it for that number. And it's completely possible that it'll be available for that kind of a number. Up to a level where it still works and we're satisfied but if you went $1 more, uh, it doesn't work. And that might sound rather harsh that there is a, a place where a $1 drops, uh, drop off makes the difference. Uh, but there is, because uh, there needs to be a line somewhere. And the only way you get uh, to that is by exploring it in the underwrite and seeing how the asset performs when you make that change to the purchase price. And ultimately, you'll get to a place where you can identify that there's a not to exceed number. And so one reason to walk away and to say no to an asset is if the seller simply requires a purchase price, a sales price, that's either at or above the not to exceed number. There's no reason to go back and manipulate or play with the underwrite to see if you can squeeze out a little bit more you've already done all the things you needed to do to the underwrite. Now, if you legitimately have missed something, right? If you go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I, uh, I forgot to include uh, the uh, $2,000 a month in additional other income we're gonna get from implementing X. Well, then you need to put that in and go through the process again to get uh, revised numbers. But you don't wanna go back and say, well, I need to come up with another 50,000. Let me do this and see if I can get 50,000 more. 
that's that's a recipe for disaster. So that's one reason that you'd want to say no and that we say no to deals. Another is uh, that it's too heavy of a lift. Um, not a very technical phrase there, but I think you get what we mean. If, and one of the ways that we can tell it's too heavy a, of a lift is the rent movement that we're looking at, right? So we like properties where we're going to move the rents 10 to 15, maybe 20%, something in that range. Generally speaking, we need to be more in the 15% range. 20% uh, is great. If we can move them that much, we certainly are comfortable doing that. Uh, if it's less than 10, probably isn't going to make the model work. That's a little more of a stable momentum kind of play. If it is above 20%, then we're probably looking at something that would be more like a rehab as opposed to a light value add, uh, the way we would go about uh, implementing that program. Is that a bad investment? No, it's not a bad investment. It is a different kind of investment. It's not as secure and stable because there's more moving parts. It's a bigger challenge. And for that reason, we would say no. Another way you can tell that it's a heavier lift or more of a rehab would be, uh, you know, what kind of CapEx per door are you putting in, right? In our models, we're going to generally be putting single digit uh, dollars per door, maybe up to 10 grand, something like that. If you're putting 15 or 20,000 or 30,000 dollars, I looked at a deal the other day for someone, it was a 30,000 dollar investment per door. Looked like a really good investment, looked like there was a real opportunity. There was also a lot of risk because that's a lot of capital being invested, uh, bank, uh, banking on and counting on the kind of performance that's going to come about in return. So again, not a bad investment, just different than the kind of security and stability that we would advocate people to look at. Um, deferred maintenance. You really don't get much payback in the way of uh, return when you're making deferred maintenance. Eventually, you could potentially get some of that back when you go to sell the property. And there's a certain amount of it you just need to do so you're not a slumlord, right? Um, but if there's a lot of deferred maintenance, uh, that can make it too heavy of a lift. The other would be occupancy, right? If the property is only 80% occupied, or maybe it's 100% occupied, but it's occupied with tenants that actually are not the tenants you're going to want to keep long term, then again, you've got to re-tenant that property. That is probably uh, too heavy of a lift. Another reason to say no, right, so this is the third on my list here, is if there's no historical data. So typically we're going to ask a seller or the seller's representative for a set of trailing 12 financials and a current rent roll. And that's just the initial documents that we're going to look at. Um, from that T12, we're going to identify any potential issues, right? We might see that there's a vacancy issue and vacancy again includes concessions and bad debt in addition to the physical uh, vacancy. Uh, we might uh, try to understand if there's other income opportunities or how much of their other income, for example, comes from late fees and, uh, and the like. Uh, on the rent roll, we're going to want to be able to see not just how the units are performing currently in terms of occupancy, but um, you know the amount of outstanding um, uh, payables, uh, pardon me, receivables uh, from each of the uh, the, the tenants. Uh, if there's any um, 
uh, expiration lumpiness coming up, right? So when you look at the rent roll, uh, are, are about 8% of the units coming up for expiration every month, or is there a month where there's 15 or 20% uh, or maybe a season where it looks like that? Those are all the things we wanna look at. And we'd like to see that data actually for about a three year period, right? We'd love to see three years of uh, rent rolls and T12s and the like. But that's not always the case, right? There are many sellers out there that simply either don't have the data or they have the data, but it's not accounted for in the manner I just described. One of the things that's very common, unfortunately, is the revenue line is a revenue line. There's no, there's no backup beyond it. There's no detail of how much was from uh, rental income, uh, what's the impact of concessions and vacancy and bad debt, uh, how much is from other income? It's simply one line item because when a money comes in, it's simply deposited and booked as revenue. Um, there can be some things you can try and do to back into numbers. Uh, we've done some of that work, uh, the forensic accounting. Um, our recommendation would be that's a reason to uh, to say no, uh, that, that if you can't see that data clearly, um, there could be problems hiding in plain sight that you simply aren't able to deal with because you don't have the, the visibility to them. So maybe that's not hiding in plain sight, but I think you get my, uh, my point there. So the fourth uh, item on this list would be if it's too complex. So if the deal that's coming together is too complex, that's a good reason to say no and to walk away. So creativity is really good. And there are many investments that uh, we have made, that Mara Polling's made over time, that have had some degree of creativity and that have caused them to be more complex than simply a straight investment. Um, 1031s have a degree of complexity, right? You, you sell an asset, those funds go to a qualified intermediary, there's some timing issues associated with it, the new asset has to fit some certain criteria. The closing statements have to support the costs that are uh, attempting to be uh, uh, rolled over. Uh, there's some moving parts. And a lot of folks do 1031s. There's really good people out there to support you doing it. It's not a unique activity. And while it adds some complexity, it's, it's appropriate to do that. That's, that's not what we're talking about. But let's say you've got a 1031 and instead of rolling into one asset, maybe there was a large amount of gain, you're actually gonna put it in two properties or three properties. And some of those properties are actually gonna be structured as a tick where the money that's being rolled in from the 1031 sale is going to go into a tick, a tenant in common deal in which there's another investor coming alongside that's the other portion of that tick or there's multiples. Uh, it's it's even possible that uh, you could have a 1031 that's structured as what's called a reverse 1031. Now, everything I've just described is doable. And each one of those items adds a layer of complexity and they get more complex and more complex and more complex. At a certain point, it becomes too complex. It becomes too challenging too many balls in the air to keep everything moving. 
when when do you draw that line well that's a personal decision right that's a decision you would need to make if you had an investment you were managing that way that's a decision we make on a regular basis when we're looking at assets uh we've we had a property just recently that we ran through this process and there was absolutely a way to make this uh property work and it involved you know step after step after step after step each one of those being a place where something could go wrong. And it became clear as we were going through that process that this was going to be too complex of a deal uh, and therefore would have more risk associated with it. And again, that risk is contrary to our security and stability objective. Again, we want to see great cash returns. We want to see nice equity growth. We want to get good tax advantages, but we don't want to lose any money. Uh, and and if we take on risk, we we increase the likelihood that we may in fact ultimately not just underperform but lose money. And we don't want to do that, right? We want to perform well over a long period of time. And uh, one of the best ways to do that is to focus on the security and stability of assets. So a deal that's too complex uh, is another reason. So I, I've given you four of the five. Um, so just in summary, so a purchase price that's at or above the not to exceed number, that's that's a good reason to say no, and we have said no for those kinds. Uh, a property that's too heavy of a lift, that has uh, so much that needs to be done that it's not really a value add, a light value add, it's a rehab project. Uh, and rehab projects have uh, potentially higher returns, but they also have more risk associated with them, and they don't fit that criteria we want to uh, pursue for um, security and stability. So that's the second reason. Uh, no historical data, that the data that we have access to from the T12 and rent rolls and so on, simply doesn't provide the material necessary to make the kind of assessment that we would wanna make. And while it might be, and maybe really is a good deal if we can't see the data to confirm that, then it simply isn't worth the risk of taking that on. And we have walked from deals that look like that. And then the fourth is uh, when it becomes too complex, uh, the more and more moving parts you put into a deal, the more complex it becomes. Each one of those potentially adds a failure point and those failure points can increase risk and eventually get you to a place where it's just not worth doing. Um, so that would be number four. Number five, and this might sound like a catch-all, um, and maybe it is, is uh, if it doesn't feel right. Now, that might sound a little odd when you look at the others, right? We talked about purchase price from a very analytical standpoint. Uh, even too heavy a lift, we had some metrics there in terms of rent movement and CapEx per door and uh, occupancy, uh, the lack of historical data, the actual lack of data, um, and the element about being too complex, there's just adding layer after layer. Well, it doesn't feel right, doesn't sound like a terribly quantitative kind of answer. Uh, <laughs> might sound to you like, well, that's, that's, um, that's just an easy exit. Well, maybe that's the case. But I think every one of us has been in a position where we've been making a decision of some sort, right? We make these financial decisions around investing our clients' uh, money. Uh, you make decisions about your own investments. Uh, it might just be an invest a decision you're making about uh, something that's a little more mundane in your life. But 
we've all had the instance where we're getting to an answer and the answer may make a lot of sense based on the criteria we spelled out and the process we used. And maybe it's a process we've used many times before and it's always led us to the right place, but there's just something about the answer you're coming up with, something about the deal that we are looking at that just doesn't feel right. Well, you absolutely don't want to do a deal because it feels right, right? That's no reason to go invest in something because, wow, this feels like it would be a great deal. We ought to go invest in it. No, we, we would never do that, right? If we had a deal that we looked at and we thought, wow, this is exciting. Look how this might be a really great performer. You've got to go through the entire process. And after you go through the entire process with all the data and you get to a place where, you know what, this continues to make sense. Well, then great. Then what we felt about it has been borne out. So if you're not going to do a deal just because it feels right, then the reverse is true as well. You wouldn't want to you you wouldn't want to go forward with a deal that didn't feel right. You you don't want to be in a position where, you know, something's nagging at me. Uh, you might re recall a conversation we had a few podcasts ago about being swan investors, sleep well at night. We want to be in a position where everyone that's involved, the clients we work with, so those of you that are clients, uh, thank you again for your support. Uh, those of you that might want to work with us or those of you that are investing on your own, you want to be a sleep well at night investor. We want to sleep well at night. We want to be in a position where we're not worried about a decision we've made. And if there's something that just doesn't feel right, and you go back and you look at all the data to try and uh, tease out what the issue is, but you just can't find it, if it ultimately doesn't feel right, don't do it. There's lots more fish in the sea. There's an effectively an unlimited supply of multifamily deals to be had. Is this maybe a great deal you're walking away from for any of these five reasons? Absolutely. I have no doubt that we have had lots and lots of really good quality deals end up on the cutting room floor at Mara Poling that we've walked away from. And that's okay, because I'd much rather have good deals end up on the cutting room floor than have a bad deal end up in a portfolio. Uh, because if you've got a bad deal in a portfolio, not only is that deal going to be challenged, but it's gonna distract from the other good properties that you've invested in, that we've invested in, and that makes it harder for those to perform and achieve uh, their success. So you may agree with my five uh, points here. You may disagree. Maybe you've got a sixth or something that you actually think should be on this list and higher than one of my five that I identified. I would love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. I'd be more than happy to uh, get your feedback and answer any questions that you have. Please feel free to swing by the website, marapolling.com. Lots of good material there at the Learning Center. And I hope that you are subscribed so that you don't miss out on any of our content. We are coming down the home stretch here in December. We have um, a few more episodes this season, and then we'll begin, uh, we will begin season four of multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Poling uh, in January, on January 7th. That's when the new season kicks off, but don't, don't wait until then. Subscribe now so that you don't miss out on the last few episodes 
of, um, of this season. And as I said, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to shoot me an email. I look forward to seeing you again next time on Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling.